0: So as we've been working through the book of James, we were in chapter 3 just a couple of weeks ago, and you'll recall the words that James spoke beginning in verse 5 saying things like, the tongue is a flame that, is like a, that sets like a, like a forest fire. It, it's that small little spark that turns into something crazy. It's, uh, it's set against our members, polluting our bodies. It's set on fire by the course of hell. And that no, we can tame all these different animals, but we can't tame the tongue. And so we began there in this section that that closes out today with chapter four verses one or verses eleven through twelve, and what that does for us, starting in chapter three, moving then towards the end of chapter three where then Drew picked up with the, the sort of spirit and attitude that lies beneath the surface of such speech, and then into chapter 4 even, with, with the, the, the cause or the, the effect of that sort of speech and that sort of attitude and the worldliness, these divisions and these hostilities bred by our selfish desires, all comes back down to our speech again, and then in chapter, or chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, with this speech and language and judging. And what it does in chapter 3, by beginning with the, the, by outlining the severity of our speech and how it's like, a, it's like the flame that starts a forest fire, it's so damaging to one another, is what that does is it ups the ante for us here as we come to the closing statement. James begins with this closing statement. He begins with this command in chapter 4, verse 11, if you turn to James 4, verse 11 through 12. And he begins in verse 11 by saying this. This is his closing statement. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And I want to just stop right there. And we'll start kind of slow and dig in. And then we'll move quicker. Uh, But I want to stop with just those words. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. To just take a moment and unpack what exactly James has in view here. Because I think that's an important question for us. James uses this word that literally means to speak against someone. Or as some translations like the ESV have, to speak evil against one another. Because the idea, speaking against this word, it carries the idea of speaking ill, speaking degradingly of one another, speaking in such a way against one another that is, that is to do harm to the other person. And it's a pretty broad category just like speaking against, like that's pretty broad, that's pretty vague. It can take on a lot of different forms, and some translations, like the NIV, say slander, they translate it slander, and, I, and although I don't think it would be limited to slander, um, it would include that, but it, we could think of things like gossiping, and criticizing, and in, insults. All of this sort of speaking against this evil, this harm against someone. And James adds a little bit more flavor to it. If you look at the next part in verse 11 here, uh, he says this, the one who speaks against a brother, or what does it say, or judges his brother. He throws in this idea of judgment. We're passing judgment on someone. We're criticizing them. We're condemning them. We're finding fault. But I don't think what James has in mind here is limited just to what we typically think of judgment in rather strict terms. Like, you're doing this. I don't approve I say you're wrong. Because remember, he's using that bigger, broad-brush, catch-all term, speak against. What he has in view here is pretty broad, but the fact that he couples it with this idea of judgment helps us, I think, understand what's going on here. And I think the reason that he puts them next to each other, this speaking against and judging, is because James wants us to understand them together. When we speak ill of someone, whatever form it takes... Are we not in effect judging them, okay so like when we speak ill of someone, we are at least in some measure we're putting ourselves in a position as their judge we're saying, folding our arms, looking down them, at our, looking down our nose at them, we're speaking against someone when we do this, we put ourselves in the judge's chair, and we make it our job to assess them, whatever form this takes, whenever we speak ill of someone we're putting ourselves in that position as their judge to assess and critique them and when we think of some of the we can we can think of some of the examples that would fall under the umbrella then of James critique just to flesh it out at the beginning so we know what's in mind as we move forward I think first of all of slander like the NIV has it translated where where we say things that put others down and slander is a really like I was thinking about that word it's a really harsh word It sounds really, like, nasty. And I don't think that we typically like to use that word to describe what we're doing when we slander because of that. We like to say we're just talking about that person, right? We like to clean it up. Or in a Christian context, we sanctify it by phrasing it in terms of, like, letting someone else know so that they can pray about it or, you know, support that person or care for that person. I think of gossip where we make it our business to get into someone else's when it's really not our business and the only thing that comes about from us knowing about it and discussing it is simply speaking poorly of someone. Or even worse, when we become complicit in circulating rumors about a person, things that are, that are likely not even true and can be really damaging and hurtful. Or we grumble and we complain and we murmur when things are done in such a way that don't meet our fancy. And in effect, we then issue our judgment on those people and say, this is a poor way of doing things. I think it should be done this way. Or we'll often put a positive spin on it and say that we're venting. And that's not to say that there isn't a place to process emotions, but if we're honest with ourselves, I think a lot of what goes on under the name of venting is just an excuse for us to say all the terrible things we want and act like it's okay because we're venting. And so we attack and we criticize and some of us do this with our sarcasm where our satire and I mean I love sarcasm, right? But it's where our satire and irony, they might be witty, but the perception of mockery might also be quite hurtful. And here's the thing. I don't think that what James is saying here is limited to only saying things that are untrue. Like slander, what we might think was Slander. When we just say something about someone that's like not... Like we're like saying something false about them. Sometimes we might be doing this when we speak the truth. But we're doing it in the wrong way. When we're doing it in a way that harms. That speaks evil against them in that sense. We're speaking the truth but as Paul would say, we're not doing it in love. Or we're doing it in such a way that puffs us up. We say like, look at me, I'm in the right where we find faults in others and it can almost be like this pleasurable thing. Like we almost are like glad we found faults because it gives us this sort of like ammunition we have to prove them wrong or to feel superior over them. And finally, I think that James might have in mind things like our tendency to, uh, to judge others with standards that go well beyond the pages of Scripture. To take our personal convictions and universalize them. And expect others to follow them and judge them when they don't. As Jesus said so clearly in Mark 7 when he cited Isaiah. He said, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And just think about that. like Teaching as doctrines, like dogma, divinely given standards and truth. What well, are actually just the commandments of men man-made rules and standards that get passed off and treated as if they're divine law that everyone must follow. I mean, if you think about that, that's blasphemy. To put those things in the place of God, say, like, God said this. It's no small matter. Or, as we, th- as we read, as, as Ricky read in Romans 14, and 1 Corinthians 8, just earlier, those with weak, overly sensitive consciences judging those with stronger consciences for doing the sort of things that they personally can't bring themselves to do but are perfectly fine and biblical. But even with that, you'll notice a passage where the emphasis was. That sword slices both ways because Paul tells us that those with a strong conscience can do the very sort of thing to the weak and look down at them because they're weak. And that's so often exactly what we do when in those particular incidences, we might be the one with a stronger conscience. And so, this is the sort of just laying some of those things out on the table. These are the sort of things, some of the judging, some of the speaking evil against that I think Paul, or sorry, I think James has in mind here. And before we go further, which we will, of course, I want to dig into this. I think it's probably helpful here to stop and ask a question that at some point will likely cross all of our minds, if it hasn't already. And that question is this, does this sort of text rule out all forms of making judgments of others, and their actions? Because I mean, it's an important question, since many people cite texts like this, or texts like other texts that are similar, like Matthew 7, that Melissa read, where where Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. People cite texts like this all the time, and they use them as a shield and they use them to rebuff things that are taught quite clearly elsewhere in Scripture. So, for example, the same Jesus, get this, the same Jesus who told us in Matthew 7 to judge not lest we be judged is the same Jesus who chapters later in Matthew 18 gives us the instruction on how to conduct church discipline, where we make a judgment about those who are living in unrepentant sin that they're not acting like believers And so we treat them like an unbeliever and remove them from our membership, which is to be restricted to believers. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says the same sort of thing, where they had a guy who was actually sleeping with his stepmother, and Paul commands the Corinthian church to remove him from their membership. And he goes even so far as to say this, notice the language he uses, that I have, this is Paul, I have pronounced a judgment a judgment on the one who did such a thing. And in other parts of Scripture, we we probably are familiar with all the different examples and constant commands for us to watch out for one another and to rebuke one another and to confront one another for each other's good. And so for this reason, among others, I don't think that uh, James is throwing out all ideas of making judgments. In fact... In Acts 15, if you remember the Council of Jerusalem, where the early church was confronted with the false idea that there's people saying that you were saved by keeping the law. James played a central role in that council by issuing a judgment condemning that teaching. Or again, in this text, James 4, James himself is judging. He's judging those who judge. So there seems to be a place for some sort of judgment. But there's another reason, beyond the broader context of Scripture, which I think it's helpful to stop and think about that. But even in this context itself, James makes it clear. Because remember, what does he say? When he says, don't judge, he puts that side, with, side by side with that, that, that term, don't speak evil against someone. It's not that he's condemning all forms of judging. He's condemning a form of judging that is doing evil, that's tearing down, that's dishing out insults the benefit of no one and I think we can break it down like this on the one hand we have a we have a certain exercising of discernment a weighing of actions and character and assessing them and in a sense that and this is proper and good we can in a sense refer to this sort of thing as judging because we're forming a conclusion about something or someone but on the other hand and I think this is what James has in mind here and what he's condemning is this thing that we call judgmentalism. We know the difference. We know, we know there's a difference between simply making judgments and then being judgmental. What we might refer to as simply, quote, making judgments, is just using our mental faculties and our moral sensibilities to weigh and consider. And when we do that for others, we do that for their good, to care for them, not to do them harm. With judgmentalism on the other hand, here the aim is to condemn others and we actually go searching to find things at which they're at fault. The result is not building people up but tearing them down. It's to discourage them. It's to reveal their their failure and actually to revel in their failure and to promote one's own sense of self-righteousness as we're able to look down at them. And so before we move on from here, I think it's, um, it's good that we actually take a moment to look at Matthew 7. So you can turn there if you like, Matthew 7, because this is one of those key texts that people go to in this sort of discussion. It's a, it's a key text that people go to and misunderstand and, and, and so easily misuse. And also, the reason I want to go here too is because as we've been looking at the book of, of James, well you've, you've probably noticed that at every paragraph, every level, James is so, his teaching is so very much influenced by that of Jesus's. And so very likely, James actually has Jesus's teaching here in mind as he tells us these words in in his letter. And so Jesus says in Matthew 7, as Melissa read earlier, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, It will be measured to you. The point here is that we need to be the sort of people that realize that we too are on the chopping block. That we too are subject to judgment. So with that, if we're going to issue out judgment, we need to remember that we're responsible for the same expectations that we put on others. We need to apply that same sort of judgment to ourselves as well. Point that thing in both directions. And so Jesus says this, continuing in verse 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So you see the issue here then. It's not that we refrain from judgment at all. Because I mean, look at what Jesus says. He actually ends up saying that to actually do remove the speck from your brother's eye. Go, Go right ahead and do that. That's a good thing to do. Just make sure you apply that same sort of inspection to yourself first. Make sure that you're applying that same sort of judgment to yourself that you apply to everyone else. When you're concerning yourself with that tiny little old minuscule speck in your brother's eye... Make sure you don't have a big old log in your own. Make sure that you're not working from a double standard. That when when something is problematic, if something is to be problematic in your brother or sister's life, then that means that it's equally problematic if it's present in yours. And here we see a principle from Matthew 7 that I think if we bring it into what James is talking about, it strikes a death blow to the judgmentalism that James is talking about. Notice this principle. Jesus tells that if we are to be looking out for the sin in others' lives, we equally, if not more so, need to be on the lookout for our own. And the great side effect of this, of of actually making our concentration our own sin, and having a vivid and honest awareness of it, of our own failures, this will make us so incredibly gracious when we deal with others. It will make us so incredibly gracious when we approach the failings of others. When we're deeply aware of our own per- imperfection, it makes, us impossible, it makes it impossible for us to come to someone else and rip into them for theirs. To come to them in pride and self-righteousness and look down our no- nose at them. No, we're going to be gracious because we have a, a vivid perception of our own failing, failings. And so we come alongside them as a fellow sinner. And this is, a, this is precisely the sort of things that James is getting at here. So, looking at the remain, remainder of the text, continuing in verse 11, so he says, The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother. Now, notice this. This is, this is, what, this is, this is how James understands this this sort of, this sort of problem with judging. Okay? The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, this is what it is, this is what's at stake. He speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And as we'll see in the next verse, he's putting himself, this person puts himself in the position of God. He puts himself in the position of the lawgiver, taking God's place as the lawgiver, taking that upon himself. And in effect, what he's saying is, yeah, the law's not good enough here. I'm going to have to step in I'm going to have to step in on this one. I'm going to have to intervene to make sure that the job gets done. And in this way, when when he takes it upon himself to judge this person, he's judging the law. Continuing in verse 11, But if you judge the law, this is what I mean. When I say you judge the law, this is what I mean. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. You're not acting like one who yourself is under the law, You're making yourself the law. You're making yourself the judge, the lawgiver, the law executor. And in this way, you're acting like you're above the law. What does James say in verse 12? He says that there is only one lawgiver and judge. And you're not it. You are not the lawgiver and judge. There's only one judge and he isn't you, it's God. God. To take it upon ourselves to judge like I was saying before this is, this is bigger than I think we might think it is. So to get this. To take it upon ourselves to judge to take it upon ourselves is to say God I'm taking your place for the moment. It's to say hey God I don't think you're doing a good enough job here. I'm going to have to step in on this one. To judge is to take it upon ourselves take upon ourselves the role that is God's alone. It is God, as James says, continuing, who is able to save and to destroy. God has the ability to judge. He's the one who can save. He's the one who can damn. We don't have that ability. We don't have that right. Who are you to judge your neighbor, he says. I mean, it's like, who in the world do you think you are? Who are we? God has that ability, but as a fellow human being, we're just on like the same plane with these other people that we're judging. To act like someone who is above you and like to act like we're above them and we can dispense our judgments on them when we're just a fellow human being. To judge others when we put ourselves in the position of God, it's to commit blasphemy. Putting ourselves in God's place. And what is at the core is not entrusting that place to God. That we feel it's necessary that we have to take that into our own hands. That we're not trusting God to dispense judgment properly in his own time and I want to kind of sit on that for a little bit because we have this inner sense I don't know about you but I've always just had this deep sense of like wanting justice and fairness and equality and all those things it's just something built into my personality I think a lot of us have that to greater or lesser degrees but we have this inner sense of justice where we want to make things right we want to right all the wrongs. And certainly we want to be a people who, who pursues justice and, and seeks to see wrongs righted. I'm not diminishing that at all. But there's a certain, I think we can all agree that there's a certain version of this that's like a wearisome, discontent ache to right every wrong that's actually rooted in a lack of trust in God who is good, And an all-knowing and wise judge who in his own timing will eventually right wrongs and set things right. We don't trust God. And so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says this. Speaking of the judgment of God, he says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. I think of like Hebrews where it talks about like that no creature is hidden from his sight but all things are exposed before him like he knows like God is good as it says in Genesis the judge of all the earth shall do right we can rest in that and even when things seem messed up and we don't understand and we want to take it upon ourselves and there's a certain lack of trust and discontentment we can rest in the fact that God will execute judgment So the fact that James says God is the only lawgiver, that's both a rebuke to our judgmentalism, but on the other hand, it's equally an an ointment to our weary souls that need to rest in God's justice and His timing. But on the flip side, when we're the ones who would be judged, when we're sort of like, we're on the chop block, the arrow's pointing our way, I want to make sure we understand something else here as well, lest we... As we take a text like this and think that it gives us a sense of escapism from judgment. Like, you know, you're not allowed to judge me. I'm not supposed to be judged by you. Back off. Okay, or We read texts like Romans 14, where Paul says in verse 4 that, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And so we say things like, you know, you're who are you to judge one of God's servants? Very similar to James here. It's God's place to, ju- to judge, so let him take care of it. And we kind of like feel like we're we're like immune then to all judgment, like let me do what I want. But as I was saying, I can see some of us misusing a text like this as somehow providing us a sense of like freeness from judgment, like we're in the clear now. Only God's the one who can judge me. But I want us to think about that for a moment. If, if we were ever to think that a text like this gives us or anyone else a sense of leniency when it comes to judgment, then we've severely missed the point. Texts like this, texts like Matthew 7 that talk about not judging do not give us a sense of leniency. Because yeah, 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 sure, okay, the, those people aren't your judge. It's not their place in, to sit in judgment of you, sure, sure, but get this... That's not a case for leniency because the alternative here is that God is your judge. That's more severe. That's more serious. That's, that's more inescapable. People are bad judges. God gets it right every time. And when we know our sin, we know that that's, that's a scary prospect. And so the flip side of a passage like this is a pretty sober reminder then of our accountability Towards God. And before we close, I have one final reflection. I want to take a moment and consider the importance of a passage like this, of avoiding slander, the importance for our church, like as a church, like a church application. For any church, but especially our church, as we consider ourselves. One of the things that evil speech breeds is conflict. And as we all know, conflict breeds disunity, or it is disunity. And we see this in a context, in the context of this very passage. Because remember, back in the early part of the chapter 3, when James is considering our tongues and how uncontrollably sinful they are, at the, at the end of chapter 3, then he gets into describing the sort of sinful wisdom, the sort of mindset and attitude that gives rise to the misuse of our tongue. And notice how he describes it in, cha- in chapter 3, verse 14. He describes it as something that breeds jealousy and selfish ambition. Conflict, strife. Continue on in verse 16, where this sort of jealousy and selfish ambition is, there's going to be disorder. This, in contrast to the godly sort of wisdom that's peaceable, that does not lead to conflict. And it's this sort of conflict, too, that you'll remember that James is addressing at the beginning of chapter 4. Conflicts that arise out of selfish ambition. This all began with discussing our tongues, our speech. And it's no wonder, right? Because it's often speech that breeds conflict. And as we said, conflict breeds disunity. When we attack each other with our speech, it's hard for us to be unified. Like, how can we be unified when we're attacking each other? And the New Testament takes this sort of disunity incredibly seriously and by extension the divisive speech that would go with it right but have you ever wondered why like have you ever thought to yourself you've probably come across those passages that talk about like disunity and how it's always about talking about unity and against disunity have you ever wondered why why does the Bible care so much about that and this is where it becomes really relevant for us even as a small church starting out The Bible takes division in the church so stinking seriously because the Bible, among other things, one of the reasons is because the Bible takes our mission as a church super seriously. When our unity is threatened, our ability to fulfill our mission becomes hindered. And so just taking Paul as an example, in the book of Philippians, you hear him saying things like this in chapter 2, he urges the Philippian Christians to, quote, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full cord and of one mind. And it becomes clear throughout the rest of the book, at least one of the reasons why he's stressing unity, why disunity and division is so problematic, is this. Looking back at chapter 1, verse 22, he expresses his desire that they stand firm in one spirit with one mind, he says. Why? Why do you stand firm? Why must we be of one spirit, continuing, it's because he says that you may strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. So that we're striving side for the faith of the gospel, the mission of advancing the gospel, for the sake of pushing that message, just as our own church mission says, advancing the gospel. And so that they can stand together, that they can spread the good news. Or we get to chapter 2, verses 14. Right after he talks about this unity, he speaks of them needing to do all things without grumbling and disputing. Why do they need to do all things without grumbling and disputing? Verse 15, so that they may be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the darkness. Lights in the world. Or again, in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul deals with these two ladies, Iodic, Iodia and Syntyche, and he tells them to get along, and it seems like at least one of the motivations he's giving them for like why they need to get along has to do with how he describes them. We get a hint at it. He describes them like this. He says that they were individuals, quote, who have labored side-by-side side with me in the gospel. Side-by-side side with me in, in, in advancing that mission, in, or the, fulfilling the mission of advancing that gospel. They need to get along so that they can get on with the mission. They need to put aside their differences because there's something bigger at play. We don't have time for that stuff. We have a mission to fulfill. Division distracts us from our mission. Division gets in the way of what should be our working together for the sake of accomplishing the mission. And so important is this mission that Paul... Paul's, in Paul's mind, that he will actually say things like this in Romans 16, verse 17. He says, Watch out for those who cause divisions, and what? And avoid them. Like church discipline seriousness. Titus 3, he says, As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with them. This is why James's command is so important for us as a church. Because we are on mission. And there are a lot of reasons why like hurtful and judgmental speech is something we should avoid. But let's not forget this one. Let's make sure that this one is pretty forefront in our minds. That we have a mission to fulfill. And I want us to just like, I mean, even as we sit here, the, as those who are members of this church, like think about each other, like look at each other. Like as a church, us particularly, really concrete here. As a community, we've joined ourselves to work together as a team to support one another as we fulfill this mission. And, and not that we're at that place now. It's, I don't think we have division now. But there's going to be things that happen and there's going to be that temptation to speak ill of each other and to get divisive. If we cause division through judgmental, slanderous, gossiping, biting speech, the thing that we have to remember is that we're personally throwing a roadblock in the way of this church's ability to do that. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of reaching our neighbors, and for the sake of impacting this community, we have to avoid this sort of speech. We have to be unified, and we have to be together on this. And so as we move towards the Lord's Supper, and as we consider the spreading of this gospel, I want us to consider what the gospel then means to us. Thinking back to Matthew seven and Matthew um, that we were to, that we were alluding to before, where Jesus talks about that we are to refrain um, from judging in a sense that, in the sense that we we perceive the reality of our own sin. That when we perceive the reality of our own sin, it will it will seep down into how we then handle that sin when we see it in others. That we're going to know that, hey, if I'm going to judge them, like I have to judge myself. And I should probably worry about myself first. Making sure that's taken care of. So that I can see clearly, as Jesus says. Get that log out of my own eye so I can actually see the speck. But that also makes us gracious. And then, just that principle, it reminds us then of the gospel. Where God's judgment is on us. In our sin. That we're born into this world... As as Psalm 51 says, David says, I was born in sin. And so so Paul can say in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our sin and we're the children of wrath. We're kids of wrath. Like that's what describes us. God's judgment rests on us. As we were talking about on Thursday in John 3, that those who do not believe, God's wrath remains on them. That's our condition as sinners. As those who have spat in the face of God in our sin. From the point of birth, we're born into this. But what is the gospel? What is this gospel that we're that we're unifying ourselves around to advance? What does this mean to us? What does the Lord's Supper proclaim to us in symbolic form? The body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Not just as like some elements that we eat and it's this magical thing that happens. But the, the, it's a symbol of his body that was given over to us. It's a symbol of his blood that was given over to us a body sacrificed for us, blood that was given as an atonement, as something that actually cleanses our sin. And as we think about judgment, and we think about how we should refrain from judging, or if we judge that the, the, the right way we judge others, as a, in a caring, loving way, we, that's all born out of a sort of empathy, and a sort of, a sort of graciousness that we have, because we know the judgment that we faced. That we face an eternal judgment before God. And that Christ took that for us. That In Romans 3 that Paul talks about how this judgment that, was, that God had, had been forbearing from all throughout the Old Testament, that Christ comes onto the scene and he takes that for us as a substitute for our judgment. So let that be the, the driving passion of, of ourselves, of the way we treat each other, of our unity as we push the mission, as we advance the gospel, and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as a reminder, um, as we celebrate the supper, we do believe that it is for believers. Um, because of that, we would ask that, um, that we would restrict it to those who are, we want to welcome everyone, but we would welcome those who are believers of, in Christ, as we talk about in the gospel right there, those who have accepted those truths of their own and those who have demonstrated that through their own baptism and joining a church. So let's pray and just uh, take a moment to even just reflect as we do that, as Paul instructs us to consider ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for the supper. We thank you for the symbolism of it, that we need this as a reminder every single week. Give us this, just this moment that we take just to personally reflect on our own lives as we make sure that we are partaking in a way that is reflected of the truths here, as Paul says, that we partake in a way that is worthily, in a way that matches with what we're declaring when we partake of the Supper. God, again, we thank you for the grace that you give us. We ask that you would make us into the sort of people that speaks graciously to us because we have a deep and vivid perception of our own sin, but how your Son has become a human being to overcome that sin for us and taking that judgment upon ourselves. Give us joy now as we celebrate that truth as we take the Lord's Supper. Amen.